I used to think that anybody that had a Bible this big was just showing off. <laughs> what I've realized is it's because you can't see. <laughs> bigger font, bigger Bible. Well, last, uh, last fall, we began our, our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. And it's been a good journey. It's been a long journey. We're just barely into it. But here's something I think we need to remember. Matthew's primary target in writing this gospel is to Jewish people. That's why we see him constantly from the very beginning pointing back to the Jewish scriptures and saying, hey, what Jesus is doing right now is fulfilling what was talked about here. We saw it last week. He referenced Isaiah as Jesus was healing people. And so it's important that we come to the scripture, Matthew, with a first century Jewish mindset. Because if we don't, we are going to miss so much of what Matthew is saying. And that's particularly true today as we get into this text. So if you would, just join me as I pray and we ask God to open our eyes to this Father, we come to you. We are so glad that you have given us your Holy Spirit to be our teacher, our instructor, to illuminate your word to us. So, Father, as we get into it, we ask that you would help us to understand your word, your truth. You would help us to respond to your truth and live it in ways that honor you and bring you glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are in the eighth chapter of Matthew, and Matthew today talks about three people in particular. He talks about Jesus, who this scribe calls teacher. He talks about a scribe, and he talks about one that's called a disciple. Now what's interesting is, if you go to the Gospel of Luke and look, Luke records the same story, but he doesn't call Jesus teacher. He doesn't talk about these other two as scribe, and disciple, he just kind of generically talks about them as another. And so that makes me, as I look at that, go, hang on, then there's something happening that Matthew is trying to convey to his audience, a Jewish audience that is special about Jesus being a teacher, that there is a scribe that comes and asks these things, and there is a disciple. And so I want to look at that and say, what is so important that Matthew wants his Jewish readers to know who these people are. So, in order to lay the, the groundwork of all of this, um, we're going to look at Jewish education and the whole system of, of their life and their culture. And I'm going to do that hopefully quick, so hang on, because it is so important. A few weeks ago, uh, in our discipleship group that I'm in, one of the guys asked, was Jesus really a rabbi? Good question. Was he really a rabbi? Now, we know that some people called him rabbi. Many called him teacher. But was he really, technically, a rabbi? We're going to find that out, too, as we unfold this, because I think it's important when, they, when this, this scribe calls him teacher, what that means, and was he a rabbi. <clears throat> so let's take a look at the Jewish culture of first century, what life was like, what their education was like. 
And that for um, a family, the first thing is Scripture was foundational. It was what their lives were built around. Their homes were built around the Scriptures. They didn't have scriptures. They didn't have a big old Bible like this in their homes. Uh, only wealthy might have a portion of some scripture written down on scrolls, but most did not. And so what they did is they constantly repeated and reminded each other of what the scripture said. They memorized chunks of it. And at night that you could hear families reciting and repeating and telling the stories we see it in like the book of Acts when Stephen is being uh, on trial and, and we see it with Paul. Like they go back and they tell the whole story, right? They know the stories. Education, the central place of education took place in the home all the time. But then there was the formal education. And that took place primarily for boys. There's some thought that maybe very young girls had some formal education. But a young woman in the first century Israel would be married probably around the age of 13. Think of that. If you've got kids around 13. (laughs) And so very early on, their education would be done in the home, but they would also be raised up to become moms to become wives. And so primarily, the education, the formal education, was for young men. And between the ages of 5 and 13, they would meet every day in the synagogue, and they would study primarily Torah. Torah and some of the Psalms. Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament, we call the Old Testament. Torah, we tend to say, is law. Oh, it's the law which in a way is true, but they saw Torah. The real meaning of Torah is not just law, but it's the way. It's guidance. It was how they lived their lives based upon the Torah. And so those first years, 5 through 13, their focus was on the Torah, understanding the written Torah, some of the Psalms, and memorizing memorizing, memorizing. For a Jewish boy, by the time he reached 13, he had pretty much memorized all of the first five books of our Old Testament, the Torah. Imagine that. A 13-year-old that could tell you every verse in the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, they get to age 13, and this was a point for most, well, for the Jewish boy, where he, they saw him going from becoming, from being a boy to becoming a man, right? We still see that in Jewish tradition of bar mitzvah, right? Today I become a man. And so at age 13, for many of these young men, they would stop their formal education in the synagogue. That would continue on in the homes, but they would then begin continue because they had already been training up in the trade of their family. And so at that point, they would continue that education as far as trade and education in the scriptures at home. Because a young Jewish man would be married at about age 18. The cream of the crop, 
Those that showed great aptitude at understanding the Scripture, memorizing, learning, knowing, they would continue their formal education in the synagogue. From the age of 13 to about 15 or 16, um, they would continue with education of the rest of the Scriptures, the Jewish Scriptures. They would dive in deeper into the law, into arguments, into understanding and application of the law. And they would memorize. They would memorize, memorize, memorize. These are the cream of the crop. And they were good at memorizing. And so by the time they were 15 or 16, they had memorized most of what we call the Old Testament. Imagine that. And if they hadn't memorized it, maybe they knew it so well, and maybe you've done this, where somebody starts to talk about something, you're like, oh, 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 that's in Luke somewhere, isn't it? Because you automatically know that. You have studied it. You've studied it. And that's what they had done. Then, the best of the best. And now we are getting, in a, in a small town, a bunch of these young boys start, and now you have the cream of the crop, a handful move on, and then you get the best of the best. Those that show there is something special about you spiritually, God desires to use you in spiritual ways in this nation. And so this would be the handful, the cream of the, the, the best of the best. And they would, at this point, at around 15 or 16, be considered material for discipleship. They were going to become disciples. And what a disciple would do is they would go and find a rabbi to sit under. They would look for a rabbi that resonated with them. Rabbis had what they called their yoke. Sound familiar? It was their understanding of the Scripture and the way they interpreted it, the way they lived it out. And so if you were one of these best of the best, you would go and look for a rabbi, and you say, I want to be like him. And then you would go to that rabbi, and you would say, Rabbi, I want to be one of your disciples. And now the rabbi would decide, can you be me? Because, see, you didn't sit under a rabbi just to know what this rabbi knew. You sat under the rabbi to do what this rabbi did. And so then a rabbi would evaluate, do I think you can do what I do so that when I'm gone, you will continue on and you will be a rabbi who carries on my yoke. Every parent would love for their son to be a rabbi. This would have been one of the greatest honors if one, if one of your sons became a rabbi. Up to this point, we're, we're looking at Jesus in this first century. Rabbi was not an official pos, uh, a position in the Jewish religion. Okay? It was a, a title of honor. It was given to somebody, and teacher was the same thing. Teacher was a, a, an honor that you, a title of honor that you gave to somebody that you said, you handled the scriptures well. You are able to teach them. You are able to help us understand and follow God well, teacher. 
And so a teacher would be one of these that had been the best of the best, that had gone up through the ranks and had been so well educated in the scriptures. And now they are at a place where they go, you handle the scriptures well. You teach them well. You help us to understand. And a rabbi usually was a teacher that had disciples. Okay? After 70 A.D., with the destruction of the temple, the Jewish system was set up where they officially went through a process of making a rabbi, kind of an ordination for rabbis. But at the time of Jesus, there was no ordination or process. There was this education system where you came up and you became a disciple, you followed a rabbi, you became that rabbi. We see Paul who talks about his education and sitting under his rabbi, right? One of the best. And, and so he could put that to his credit. I'm a, I'm a Jew of Jews. I sat under Gamaliel, or I, I probably didn't say that right, but he was well known as a rabbi, one of the best, and Paul sat under him. So now I want you to think about all of that and think about Jesus a little bit more. You remember when Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, forgot him in Jerusalem? Okay? And you can say, how can you forget him? Well, okay, I've forgotten some of my kids here at church. I wasn't three days away, and I didn't live that far, but I had to come back and get them. How old was Jesus when they forgot him? Twelve. He probably didn't just turn 12. He was between 12 and 13 and maybe approaching 13. And so now you're in Jerusalem and you're leaving in a big group of people headed back, right? Headed back to Nazareth. And so where's Jesus? Well, does he travel with the women and children or does he travel with the men? You see, he's at this point where he is almost a man, but he's still considered a child. And so each thinks, oh, he's probably with Joseph. He's probably with Mary, and about three days out, they realize, wait, you don't have them? Okay, we're turning this thing around. We're headed back. And when they find him, where do they find him? They find him in the temple. And what we're told, we don't know much about Jesus' younger life, except here we are given this glimpse of the people there were amazed at his understanding of the scriptures and the questions he asked. Now, why is that important? The questions he asks. You know what a, a good rabbi does? He asks good questions. That was one of the marks of a good rabbi. Because when an, you'll, you'll see it, once you see these things, you can't unsee them. And I hope this is helping you understand so much more of the scripture. When a rabbi was asked a question, he didn't usually answer it directly. He didn't say, well, yeah, no, that should be this. Instead, he would answer your question with a question. You see it all the time with Jesus. Or a statement. But either way, it made you come to the conclusion of what the answer was. Today, we, in, coaching, in coaching, where we help each other grow in the secular field, they would say, that's a brilliant thing. You help them to come to the conclusion, the answer themselves, because why? Then they own it. They understand it. They have come up with it themselves. This is not new. Jewish rabbis were doing it for centuries. 
Jesus had great questions at the age of 12. And the people were amazed at his understanding of the scripture. Do you think he was one of those cream of the crop guys? No doubt. I think Jesus continued his education on through. And as you sat under a rabbi about age 30, you would begin your ministry as a rabbi. Sound familiar? Okay. So now, having said all of that, we are ready to enter into today's text. And I think it will make more sense. So in our text, we see, says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. In first reading, if you just read this or you just heard Sharon read it for the first time, you hear this stuff and you're like, okay. You got a guy say, hey, I'll follow you wherever you go. Okay. I'm not sure about that. Eh, Okay. And then Jesus starts talking about foxes and birds, and, and you're like, what is going on? Okay. Let's talk about that. Here's a scribe. What would his background, his education look like? Well, he would have been one of these young men that went pretty far. Okay? I don't know for him where his education would have stopped, but it would have been past 13. He would have been in there learning the law. He would be considered an expert in the law. Scribes were often used for writing up legal documents in the Jewish country now. They knew the law. They were, they were the ones that would interpret the law. So he was one that knew the scriptures, memorized the scriptures, handled them well. And here he is coming to Jesus and says, Teacher, you handle the scriptures well. I, I like what I'm hearing. And as they said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you teach with such authority, unlike the scribes. You have authority. A rabbi was said to have authority when people sensed there was something more, something special, God-given in that rabbi. And so they would use that term, a rabbi, with authority. We see that talked about with Jesus as he finished up his sermon. And so this scribe comes to him and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. What was he asking? It's become very clear knowing the background. He was saying, I want to sit under you. I want to be one of your disciples. Because a disciple would go wherever their rabbi went. Because their job wasn't to sit and learn. Their job was to become their rabbi. And so this scribe, and this is... This is unusual and I think a little dangerous for this scribe because it's kind of like Nicodemus who comes to Jesus. He's a Pharisee. He comes at night and he says, good teacher, we know you're from God. But I can't be seen here. And I think of this scribe venturing out and Jesus is about to get onto a boat and go and he comes up and he says, teacher, I want to be one of your disciples. And based upon how the system works, now what's the response? Jesus has to either accept 
or reject him as a disciple, right? And yet Jesus isn't going to give him a direct answer. He's going to give him an answer that tells, lets him know the answer. And so Jesus says, Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What's Jesus saying? He's saying something where this guy will understand, can I be your disciple or not? And I think the first thing we kind of understand is Jesus is saying, okay, just understand. Comfort and possessions. I don't care. They're not part of my ministry. It's not what I'm doing. Even the birds and the foxes have a place, but it's not... I don't. I have no place to lay my head. So, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to follow me, are you going to become me? Are you willing to do that? And I don't know, we have no other background, I don't even want to guess, but I think, was this scribe dressed well? Was he, had a good reputation? What, was he popular? I don't know. But Jesus knew this cut to the heart of the matter in just saying, hey, just so you know, comfort, possessions, mean nothing to me. Are you ready to follow me? And we don't know the answer. But what we do know is he doesn't show up in the boat that heads across the sea. And so we can guess that he went, oh, yeah. I'm not sure I could do that. As Gentiles, we see that, and we would conclude that, and I think that is a huge part of his thinking. But now we need to step into first century Jewish thought and go, is there more happening here? And there is so much more happening here. Jesus is going to use a term for the first time here in the Gospel of Matthew, a title for himself that he is going to use over 30 times in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. In the four Gospels, it is used over 80 times. It, it is the title he gives to himself more than any other title. It's the Son of Man. And so realize that he says, foxes have holes and birds in the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What does Son of Man mean? Well, as Gentiles, we would say, well, it's his humanity, right? It's, it's, it makes sense. He's saying, hey, I'm human, but possessions, comfort, it's not what I'm all about, even though I'm human. And, and, and son of man is one of those terms that I think Jesus, as, an, as a rabbi, uses intentionally because it, it has double meaning. But while we might think it's primarily focused on his humanity, what I've come to realize, it's mostly focused on his deity. And here's what this might be saying to this scribe who knows the scriptures. And I find it interesting that it's the first time Jesus uses this title for himself, Son of Man. And it's the first time and he does it in front of a scribe. 
Somebody that's open to hearing what he says, and he's going to say it because he thinks this scribe is going to pick up on what he means. Where does the Son of Man show up in the Jewish Scriptures? Remember, Matthew's always pointing back to the Jewish Scriptures. Well, let's go to Daniel 7. Daniel is in exile in Babylon. And Daniel one night has a vision. And he writes it down. This is a vision of things to come. This is a vision of end times. And it starts out in chapter 7 where he sees these four beasts coming out of the ocean. Okay? Out of the sea. And there's all of this taking place. But then we get to verse 9. And Daniel writes this. As I looked, thrones, thrones plural, were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Who's the Ancient of Days? God the Father, okay? God the Father. There's thrones set up, more than one, and the Ancient of Days takes his seat. His clothing was white as snow, And the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. You get the picture? The Ancient of Days. Daniel's just trying to describe what he's seeing in his vision. Thrones are set up. The Ancient of Days. All this fire. All these people to serve. All these people standing before him. And the books are open for judgment. Next few verses, he talks about the the one beast in particular. I don't want to go down that road, so we're just going to move on down to verse 13, where his vision continues. And he says, I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. What's Daniel seeing? Daniel is seeing this promised one, the Messiah. This one that is called the Son of Man. Which means he looks like a man. And yet everything we see in this vision, he is God. He is brought in before the Father. He is seated. He is given dominion and glory. His kingdom will last forever. Think of that. Daniel's seeing this. And Jesus now, before this scribe, who knows you know Daniel, you know, I know they've been reading these these visions and what does this mean and trying to dissect it. And Jesus uses the term, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I don't know the reaction this scribe gave Jesus. It might have just been it went over his head. Except, see, we might go, okay. If if I said this morning, well, for God so loved the world, where does your brain go? 
John 3.16, right? Your, your brain starts filling in the answer because you know it. You've memorized it from a child. Automatically, boom, you know that. Jesus is saying the Son of Man because he knows where this will trigger this scribe to go to. And I don't know if the scribe said, oh, okay, like I can't give up all my possessions, which we generally think and, and could be a huge part of it. But I also think he went, I was, I was living dangerously coming here as a scribe because most of the scribes were, and Pharisees were uh, uh, against Jesus, thinking he was a threat to their whole religion. And he's like, I think he might be somebody I want to follow. And now Jesus just said, and, so you know, I am the Son of Man. I am God. And that scribe went, I, 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 can't, I can't go there. I can't, I can't go there. I don't know. But Jesus is declaring something here. Now, if, if you think, Mark, you're, you're, you're stretching it here. I told you, Jesus uses this title over 30 times in the book of Matthew. Now that I've said that, this is the first time. You start listening every week as we preach. When it pops up, think Daniel 7. It will, it will help you understand what he is talking about because there's no doubt he is connecting it to Daniel 7's, Daniel's vision of this Son of Man who is God. In a few weeks, we're going to hit Matthew 9. We're in Matthew 8 right now. Beginning of Matthew 9. I'm not going to say too much because I might be preaching that. I don't know who's preaching that one. <laughs> but I don't, want to, I don't want to take their thunder. But there's a paralyzed man that is brought before Jesus. And Jesus says, son, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. And we read that and we're like, well, okay, thanks. But he came here because he can't walk. And Jesus says, no, I know the real problem. It's your sin. From the beginning of Matthew, remember, Jesus came to save his people from their sin. And Jesus says, your real problem is your sin. And it says the scribes are freaking out because they're like, blasphemy, blasphemy. Why is it blasphemy? Jesus just said he forgave him his sins, and only God can forgive sins. So you are claiming to be God and do what God can do. That's blasphemy. And here's what Jesus answers. He says, to show you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, stand up. Take your mat and go home. You think Jesus is claiming he is that one in Daniel 7? Absolutely. I'll show you I have authority on earth to forgive sins. Why? Because I'm God. Jesus does these miracles to show that he has authority. Matthew 12, we'll get there, I don't know, 20, 25, something like that. Um, there's this dispute over the Sabbath and healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Who's Lord of the Sabbath? Only God, right? And Jesus is saying the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. There is no doubt Jesus is using this term to start to open up to these Jewish people. He keeps saying, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody. But as he marches towards the cross, he is revealing more and more and more. 
I am that one Daniel saw. I am that one that will sit on the throne where all nations will serve me. I am God. I think that helps us to understand what's going on here with the scribe. And now we're going to move to the disciple, the one that's called a disciple. Okay? I don't want to guess too much, but I go, who is this? What a disciple. I go, well, it's obviously somebody who has been following Jesus, okay? We're told that all the, he calls the disciples up on the mountain when he's going to preach. We know of four right now. There have been four that Matthew has talked about, the four fishermen. And this is probably a guy that has been following Jesus around. He sat up on the, on the mountain. He heard Jesus' sermon. He's watched him do miracles. But I also think that he's probably one of these guys who has been the best of the best and is now at a position where he's looking for a rabbi to sit under. And he's following Jesus and going, is this the guy I want to sit under? Is this the rabbi that I want to become? And he is weighing that and and evaluating that. And here in Matthew, we don't see Jesus' question to him. We only see his response, and we can guess what the question is. But if we go to Luke, we do see the question. And it says, after Jesus deals with the scribe, he turns to this man and he says, Hey, follow me. It's the same thing he said to the four fishermen, right? He's walking on the shore and he says, Hey, follow me. And what did they do? They immediately dropped their nets, left their stuff, and followed him. And uh, I I have to admit that often I'm like, the dad, because this was a family business, the dad's got to be like, oh, no, 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 no. Now what am I going to do? I told you at the beginning, every family would consider it a high honor if their son became a rabbi. Their sons obviously were not rabbis. Their sons obviously probably... age 13 did not make the cut of the cream of the crop and so they have become fishermen it doesn't mean they were stupid and they didn't understand scriptures at all um later we'll see that they were uneducated and i think it means that they didn't they weren't these guys that were given all this extra education but when the rabbi comes to you and says follow me that's backwards I should be the one that gets to a point where I can go ask a rabbi. Instead, this rabbi is asking me to follow him. And when they left their nets, I think the dads are like, go, go, my son, my son has been called by the rabbi to follow him. And now in the same way, Jesus turns to this disciple and says, hey, follow me. And his response is, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Seems very reasonable, doesn't it? Hey, uh, like you know I've been following you for a while. You know I've been listening in. You know I'm really considering and I think I want to follow you, but let me bury my father first. I would expect to Jesus to go, oh, 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 I'm so sorry. Absolutely. Catch me when I come back. Something like that. Instead, Jer- Jesus says a statement that sounds harsh and out of character for Jesus. He says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Whew. 
Jesus, how harsh. This man lost his father, and you're like, hey, you in or out? Now, what is this saying? Well, here's what I think it isn't saying. I don't think what I just said is what Jesus is saying. I don't think he said, hey, I don't care. Are you going to follow me or not? I don't think that, not because that sounds good, but Jesus rails on the Pharisees about their traditions that allow them to not honor their father and mother. He really rails on them. And so if he rails on them for not honoring their father and mother, then how can he say, hey, let the dead bury the dead. You come on. So, so I think that that isn't what he's saying. So what is he saying? I think there's a couple possibilities. One really resonates with it. They both do, but in Jewish history at this time, if someone passes... There's a period where you take the body and you wrap it and you put it in a cave or someplace, a tomb or something, for the body to decay and the bones to dry. And then a year or so later, you would go and collect those bones and you would go and bury them. Okay? Perhaps his father has died and he's in this period of waiting before he buries his father. And so he says, hey, I just have this thing to do before I can follow you. I think that's a possibility. Here's what was interesting in my studies. Here's another possibility. You notice what this guy didn't say. He didn't say, hey, my father just died. Let me go bury him. Now, we don't think this way, but he may be saying, my father's getting old. My father's getting up there in in years. Let me take care of him. Let me wait until he passes and bury him, and then I will follow you. I read of a missionary who was a missionary in the Middle East, and one of the men there had come to Christ and was a new believer, and this missionary was going back to Europe, and he said, hey, would you come with me to Europe? I want you to stay with me where I can disciple you to follow Christ. He was a brand new believer. And, and this man, Middle Eastern man said, ah, let me bury my dad first. Okay? Almost the same exact stuff. And the missionary was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know he passed. He said, he hasn't yet. But he's getting up there in age. And I, and I just feel like I, I shouldn't leave now. That resonates. Because, because there's always something that keeps us from following Christ. In that, it might even be, and I, I want to be careful not to stretch too far and speculate, but when a father dies, what happens? The inheritance is given, right? And he may be even thinking, once he passes, I take care of this, I get my inheritance, now I will be able to follow you, I will have the, the funds to follow you, and I'm all in. I will be all in. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. What does that mean? Sometimes as you're studying and and you read something, at first you're like, oh, no, I don't think that. And as you start to unpack it, you're like, oh, you know what? I, I think maybe. Does it mean let the spiritually dead bury the dead? Like, hey, let those that haven't been called 
Let the spiritually dead deal with that. I'm calling you to follow me. I think that's a good possibility. But here's what I know in all of this. Here's this young man who has been called by Jesus to follow, and he says, ah, I'd love to. I've been checking you out. I've been, I've been listening to you. I, I've been thinking, I think you're the one I want to follow. But I've got something I need to do first. And once I'm past that, I'm in. So now the question is, what do we do with that? You see, you've heard the message today. You've heard Jesus say these things, and now you have to respond. How do we in practical ways respond to this portion of Scripture? To Jesus calling us, because we know that he has called us to follow him. Here's what I think. First of all, realize who's called you. It is the Son of Man. It is who Daniel saw. It is the creator of the world. It is God, the Messiah. And he is the one saying, follow me. We get so wrapped up in the term following these days, right? How many followers do you have on Instagram? Who are you following on YouTube, TikTok, Facebook, right? We use the term following all the time. And here's what happens. I know people, I do some of this, that you go, oh, I listen to four sermons a week. I'm following this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy. I really like how. And then you know what? Somewhere along the line you find like, eh, I'm kind of tired of him. I, I like this guy. And so we get so used to kind of jumping around and finding people that we like in whatever realm we like, and we follow them. It isn't a Jewish rabbi calling us to follow him. If it was, we might go, oh, interesting. I want to listen to him. I want to hear what he has to say. There were tons of people doing that when Jesus was preaching and and healing. That's not who's calling us. It is the Son of Man. It is God. And he says, follow me. What I love is, he doesn't evaluate in the way that says, well, I don't know, could you? Mm, I don't think you could. No, he says, you know what? We know because of the fishermen. We know because we see it all the time. The 12 that he ends up with, Like, wow, wow, none of them should have been called by a rabbi to follow. And he says, I don't care, because I am the God of the universe, and I'm calling you because God has purpose for you. Follow me. And so he calls us. The God of the universe says, follow me. And how do we follow? Let's get real practical, because that sounds, maybe that sounds good. Oh, yeah, I want to do that. How do you do that? We need to be people of the word. We used to have a bracelet. I'm old, so I don't know anybody under the age of 30, might not, 40, 50, okay, uh, might not even remember that WWJD, what would Jesus do, bracelets, right? And, and I remember a bracelet somebody had, it was pretty funny, I, don't, I won't even say all the initials, but it had letters going all the way around it, and it stood for... How can you do what Jesus would do if you don't know what Jesus did? We can't be followers of Jesus if we don't know who Jesus is. 
if we don't know what he's called us to, if we don't know this God, his Father, if we don't know all that's happened in the transaction that's happened to make us righteous so that we can find and follow him, that we don't know about the Holy Spirit who is indwelling us and gives us the strength, the ability, and, and power, and desire to follow him. We need to be people of the word. And here's what I know. We don't do that well alone. In our, in our D groups, of our discipleship groups, um, I've been a part of several starting them, and, and, and I've been in uh, a number of them. And here's what comes up most often as we start. Why are you here? I can tell you, as guys, this answer comes up more than anything else. Because I know when I'm alone, I grow cold. I am cold. Spiritually cold. We don't follow Christ well by ourselves. And I would say you can't follow him by yourself. You could be secluded on on an island, but, but we need each other. And so we do that in our discipleship groups, in our small groups, our Bible studies, in groups where we intentionally gather around the Word of God. Not just socially, we gather around the Word of God, and relationally we want to know and pursue that and encourage and help each other do that. Here's what else I know. Doing this together is really hard. So we can't do it alone, and it's really hard together, but we've been called to do it together. And Jesus gives us the example. He, he calls Matthew a tax collector and, and Simon a zealot who wants to kill the tax collector. He says, boys, I'm calling you to be a part of my group. Follow me. And it's only because of the Holy Spirit that they are able to become one. Second thing, I think we have to, to put flesh on this. We have to ask ourselves, What's keeping you from following Jesus? I hear this second guy go, oh, let me, let me get to this point. Let me bury my father. And then I see open, open road ahead of me. Then I can do it. And I go, oh my goodness, how many times have I said that? Maybe you're like me. You're approaching retirement, right? And you're like, okay, I can see retirement down the road. And Jesus, I know I'm, I, I'm, I'm a little busy right now, but once I get there, we, I have open road, and I will follow you. Oh, I know there's stuff behind that. <laughs> Maybe you've got kids. Oh, my goodness. That's a busy life. Three of my grandsons came in yesterday afternoon. between water fights and everything else. They wear me out. Being a parent with with kids, young kids, is hard. And you say, okay, Jesus, once I get my kids grow up a little bit more and I have more time, I'm in. Once my kids get out of the house, once I graduate from college, once I get married, once I get a job, just let me go and experience life and have fun for a while and I'll be back. There's always that thing that we're waiting for. And Jesus says, follow me. Because there will always be the next thing. You want to know one of the things that I find? A lot of what I said are events or, or, or seasons of life. There is something that I know that 
that is probably the major thing that keeps me from following Christ with all that I have. Anybody else? Okay. This is a great device, and this is a terrible device, because we will find that all of our free time is occupied with this. We just want to sit down for a few minutes. I'm just going to scroll a little bit. I'm just going to binge watch a few, few, uh, few movies. I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to, and how quickly do hours go by? And you're like, oh, I got to get going. What is it that's keeping you from following Jesus? Can I ask you to do something today? I think it's important. I think the Holy Spirit right now is, is talking to you about stuff that's keeping you from following Jesus. Don't let it sit up in the head and just be stuff. Would you today make a point before you go to bed tonight to write down two things that you say, I know these are keeping me from following Jesus. Would you write them down? Put them on your nightstand. Put them someplace where you see them. And then would you ask God to help you lay those aside and follow Jesus? And here's the thing. You won't do it today and go, I'm done. I'm free. I'm good. Nope. We are called to daily die to ourselves, pick up their cross, and follow Jesus. Because you know what? My dad used to say, learn to fight good fights because you will fight the same ones over and over and over. The same ones. And so tomorrow when you get up, those same battles will probably be right there on the nightstand staring you in the face going, hey, you going to follow me today or are you going to follow this today? The Son of Man knows why we were created. He knows the purpose. And when I see all those people serving the Son of Man, my first instinct is like, whoa, whoa, do we get anything else to do? And I go, here's what I've realized. All the other distractions that call us and say, hey, serve me, serve me, serve me. God knows and he created us with purpose. And that purpose was to worship and serve him. And when we do, we will find all that we're looking for in life. Everything else is an illusion. And Jesus says, come and follow me. Father, I pray that you would help us to take this information from our heads and bring it into our very beings, our hearts, but our very beings, Jesus. Jesus, we have said we want to be disciples that make disciples. Help us to understand what a disciple is so that we, we make disciples who look like Jesus and not like us. Father, I ask by the power of your Spirit you would give us the desire and the strength to follow Jesus every day, to lay down our lives and follow Jesus. And I ask these things in the name of Jesus. And Father, it, it just came to my mind that we also lift up Paul Vorvig. Father, we're grateful that, that you have brought him through surgery. And so, Father, we are so grateful and pray that you would continue to touch and heal him. Father, we also lift up our, our search team and pray you would continue to go before them because as a body in this place, we desire to follow you together. 
as your body, as your bride. And I ask these things in Jesus' name.